Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. Before we get started, I want to tell all the artists listening about Bango. If you're like many of the artists I know, you spend more time managing your career than you do creating art. Bango helps you with this. To learn more, go to bangoart.co slash podcast. That's B-A-N-G-O dot co slash podcast. And if you're looking for original art, Bango is an amazing place to find art from some of the best emerging artists. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome the CEO of Twyla, Brian Sharples. Twyla makes it possible for everyone to directly access exclusive artwork from the most talked about artists in the game and without costing you an arm and a leg. They do this by focusing on high quality limited edition prints of 100. Prior to Twyla, Brian was the CEO of HomeAway, which is one of the first and largest online vacation home rental companies. During his tenure as CEO, he drove online rentals from 5 to 95% of the market, before selling to Expedia in 2015 for $3.9 billion. And the good thing is, Brian believes the same online penetration can happen in art, where online sales account for only 3% of the market. So look, between seeing a lot of beautiful homes with empty walls and starting several successful tech companies, I haven't met anyone who understands the potential and knows how to execute better than him. Today, I talked to Brian about how Twyla removes many common pain points about selling art online, how they use technology to create an Apple-esque experience, and how big he thinks this market can be for the category between posters and Picassos. So please, allow me to welcome today's guest, Brian Sharples. Hey, Brian, it's great to have you. Hey, Ethan, thanks for having me here. It's really great to be here and talk to you today. All right, well, let's fire off. Let everyone know what is Twyla and uh, why are you excited about starting it? Sure, yeah. So Twyla is a company that um, has been operating uh, to the public for about a year, but took about a, a year before that uh, to build it. So the company itself is two years old. The website's um, one year old. Um, Twyla um, was started with the goal of trying to uh, create uh, an art brand and an art business that was more tuned into the next generation of art buyers who grew up with instant access to everything, grew up with phones and, um, and you know, notebook computers that allow them to, uh, you know, research, find transparent pricing, uh, know exactly when something's going to get shipped, return it if they don't like it. We just have a new culture of buyers who demands different. And, you know, the founders of Twyla understood the art market pretty well, the high end of the art market. Uh, it's a very exclusive market for a lot of people. It's very hard to navigate. Pricing isn't generally transparent. Uh, the top artists sell at very, very high prices, which are hard for a lot of people to justify all but the biggest collectors who really understand that. And even if you wanted to collect it, oftentimes the galleries uh, may or may not give you a piece depending on who you are and what you plan to do with it. And so it's, you know, it's a, 
it's a bit of a broken model, I think most people would admit. Uh, it's one of those funny businesses that even the people who participate, you know, in the traditional art market will say um, that it's, uh, you know, that it's a very inefficient uh, business. And so uh, we created Twyla to try to change that, to uh, help people, listen, people buy art for three reasons, right? They're going to buy it um, uh, either for investment uh, and, and a number of people do. I will tell you it's a pretty tricky space to be in. Uh, and the majority of people who would step into that market and don't really understand it are probably going to lose money versus make money. Um, people buy art for um, beauty. They're trying to enhance their spaces. They like to look at it. That's probably the primary reason people buy art. And the third reason people buy art is because of the story behind it. It may be that they can relate to that artist. It may be that they can relate to the piece itself. It may be a geographic connection to that piece or that person. Um, so Twyla, uh, we really didn't get any business to, uh, to try and tackle the investment side of the world. We wanted to provide a great value, but we really wanted to do two and three well. We wanted to build a company that could deliver large format, super high quality art that would enhance people's spaces. But behind each one of those pieces, we wanted to make sure that they were highly curated in the sense that there was a story that people understand, that the artists, you know, were relevant and interesting and the, and the motivation behind the piece was interesting. And so we've, you know, combined, I think, uh, a product and a price range uh, with a level of curation that you don't typically see uh, on the Internet. And all the while, <clears throat> we knew that, um, you know, I think... If you asked sort of why I originally invested in Twyla, uh, I've done a number of other internet companies and other marketplaces. And it's pretty interesting when you look across e-commerce and you look at the penetration of uh, e-commerce uh, as a percentage of a particular retail product or particular retail category. And, you know, I think everybody knows with the advent of Amazon and a zillion other businesses that in many, many markets, you now have you know, 50, 60, 70% penetration. In the vacation rental segment, which was my last company, um, you know, by the time I left HomeAway, I think penetration of people you know, searching for vacation rental homes online was like you know, 95%. Uh, so we took a look at the art market, and one of the things that's interesting about the art market, you'll see a lot of sort of debate about the numbers, but call it anywhere between 45 and 100 billion in revenue. Uh, and the best data available would say that, you know, a little bit north of 3 billion of that revenue is currently transacted online. So compared to virtually any other category of e-commerce, art is very anemic. But against that backdrop, uh, we also know when we survey the next generation of art buyers, um, that they're incredibly interested in buying online. In fact, they buy everything online. And, uh, and, and, and to some extent, you know, for the ne in the next 20, 10, 20 years, the buyers we're going to see are people who, to some extent, know no other way, right? Yeah. And so that looks like an opportunity when you see that small penetration. Um, now, why is it small? And why is art one of the last categories to go online? It's because it's art. I, I remember going to a presentation, I think it was a woman who was running post-war and contemporary from Sotheby's, and she was speaking about the online art market. And I stood up and I asked her a question, which was just 
you know, trying to get her read on how high can online penetration, you know, ever go. And she said, look, Brian, there's, uh, uh, there's only three things that you still really can't experience fully online. One of them is food. One of them is sex. And one of them is art. And, and so I love and, that. And so in her, in her opinion, uh, you know, it was going to take some time to develop. Um, but, uh, you know, we actually believed based on conversations with a lot of customers that we could change that. But in order to change that, we would have to provide more value, transparent pricing, you know, very easy ways to test and trial the product, um, very liberal return policies. And so we built Twyla with all that in mind. Uh, in the core, what's unique about Twyla is we don't sell original art. We have no intention to sell original art. We are a pure limited edition business. And the limited edition business offers us some advantages that other art companies don't have. The biggest one is that, so what we do as a company is we go out uh, and we work with artists that we want to have on our platform. We have them create an exclusive work for us. Uh, and then we have a license with them to sell a certain amount of those pieces. All of those pieces are uh, printed on demand when ordered by a customer. So if you order a piece from Twyla, uh, that will immediately trigger down to our manufacturing floor. That piece will be created. Uh, it'll be shipped to you in a fixed number of days that we tell you in advance, and we guarantee you're going to get it by then. Um, and, you know, again, you have the opportunity to return it if you don't like it. But that economic model is a little bit different than other art companies uh, that are trying to sell originals or ship originals from studios and things like that. Because it's a limited edition, uh, we can sell at a lower price point. So our typical artists to buy their original work, uh, you know, might be in the high tens of thousands of dollars, but at Twyla it's, you know, $1,000 or $2,000. And so we're trying to provide that value as well. A lot of really good stuff there. I was going to say on the sex, food, and art, you know, Online, you know, food companies like Instacart or Amazon and the porn industry are huge. So you would think they've at least facilitated those industries a little more than it has in art. Yeah. When So when you think about the market, though, and you talked about that, like, I mean, how, you know, I, I, I read a quote from one of your investors, uh, David Crane, who said that the global market is, is, is bigger than you think. It could be $100 billion, and there's a huge, huge gap between posters and masters. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do, how do you, when, how do you think about it? How do you talk about it? What's the number in your deck as far as how big this space is? Yeah. So it's a great, great question. It is a pretty big business overall. If you just look at what's being transacted today and the segment we play in, I don't think the market has yet been created. And I think it can be orders of magnitude bigger than the traditional art market today. One of the things we've realized with Twyla We've had quite a struggle in the first year. All companies really kind of struggle in their first year to figure out what is their identity. Are we a fine art company? Are we a decor company? Uh, and I think where we've settled at Twyla, and it really has to do with, you know, where we resonate with our customers and what people like about the brand, is that um, Twyla are, is sort of straddling the line between being a fine art authorities. So for example, we have, you know, curators from some of the top galleries in the world who work here, um, but also combining that with interior design authority. So we also have top interior designers who work here. And our philosophy is that we want to we combine quality art 
uh, with great design. In that sense, what we have found at Twyla is that where we are resonating best is in fact with people who are trying to you know, make their homes beautiful. Interior designers have become a huge part of our business because designers understand the value of the pieces we provide. They may have a contract to decorate someone's house and uh, they might have been given a $50,000 budget to do that. Um, you know, with certain originals, that budget may allow them to put one piece in the living room. With that same budget, and our average price point is today about $1,400, um, you're looking at, you know, potentially 40 pieces <laughs> that can go in that house. And, and so I, I think what uh, we're trying to make art so much more accessible and so easy to buy that my feeling is that there's a very, very big decor business out there. There, there are white walls, put it this way, <laughs> everywhere um, that could be populated and beautified with more things. And, and, and certainly people think about, you know, when they put together a bedroom or put together a living room or a family room, um, you know, they're going to be fairly complete and say, I need, a, I need a, a sofa and I need a love seat and I need a couple lamps and I need some tables and things like that. People don't, some do, but people generally don't think the same about sort of wall decor and wall art. And so my belief is that if we can really combine that art industry quality with that design eye, deliver it very efficiently to the marketplace, that that will open up uh, a much bigger market than the traditional art market. Because now you're looking at, you know, the decor business, which is orders of magnitude larger than just the art market itself, combined with the art market. And I think it could be a, you know, I think for what we do, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar market potential. Yeah. Um, so what's that number? Do you have a number in mind as to how big it can be or what it is now and how big it will be? Well, we, we use, um, I mean, in our investor decks and the like, um, we use a $100 billion global number for the art business. But when we talk about, you know, adding in that decor component, you know, we think of that as, you know, maybe a 20 to $30 billion market in and of itself. Yeah, they say that something like 5% of people own original art, 20% of people own, you know, wall decor, and that, you know, there's 80% of, of walls out there are blank. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, like from a psychological perspective, I think it's because the last couple of generations have grown up with family photos on their wall, and they actually view their walls very personal, and they want something unique, but they don't know how to go about it. And so if you give them that channel to go about finding something that they really like, they'll get it. Yeah. But I think you also, in order to do that well, what we've learned is you also have to provide pretty high-touch services. So it's, it's not enough to just throw a bunch of pieces you know, out on the website and talk about the quality and the artists and put up a price and hope people will buy. You, you, you also have to hold people's hands. You know, we, have, uh, we allow our customers to call our curators on the art side. We allow our customers to call our curators on the interior decoration side. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people you have to handhold through that. I think one of the things I have learned about this, this, this isn't, you know, a business that's as rational as buying, you know, blue jeans or something like that. Um, people do have, you know, their own taste and style. But I think what I've learned is that most people who don't spend their lives in the art market um, are very nervous about taking that last step and buying a piece. I mean, it is a big deal. A twilight piece costs, you know, a, a $500 and up 
and so that's a big investment for a lot of people. And so what you find is it's actually pretty easy <laughs> to get people to put art in shopping carts. So they come to the site, they get excited, they see five or six things that they like, and they, and, and they put them in their cart. To get them to then take that step of going from the cart to now I'm going to pick one of those five and buy it is scary for a lot of people. And so we've started providing uh, just touch points all along the way that really encourage them, you know, to call us, talk to people here. Um, you know, we're building technology like a lot of other sites already have that allow people to visualize pieces within their setting. We've been doing most of that manually since the beginning so people can send us a picture of their rooms. You know, we have really good, um, we have really good content people who can then sort of place art in those spaces and we do it very professionally. But something as we get bigger, we're going to have to do in a more leveraged fashion. But I think that's one of the cool applications right now of technology, the art market. Yeah, I mean, let's dive into that a bit because I, I, um, I liked your point about people buy for three reasons, right? It's either an investment piece, it's the look of it, or it's the story of it. Um, how do you see... Like, what, how do you see technology playing a role in that and telling a story? And what, do you think that online, what's the benefit that online or tech can have for the story and the aesthetic? Yeah. Well, I mean, just right off the bat, even talking about just sort of the whole process piece of this, I mean, technology has changed massively in the next few years in terms of, you know, the, the, the quality of the scanners that you can use to, you know, take an original piece of art and turn it into an addition, the printing quality and the technologies available to do that. And, and there are, you know, we have pieces uh, that you can see here in our office that uh, are... Which is a beautiful office, by the way. Thank you. I, lo I love walking around. <laughs> that, are, that are two-dimensional pieces. Uh, and and you, you go to run your finger over them because your mind just can't believe that it isn't a three-dimensional piece. And so technology has allowed us to deliver a quality and a price point that I think didn't exist five or six years ago, that's number one. Number two, though, when it comes to the story, I think the story is important. Like, we're finding that, at least for our buyers, they're focused on beauty and design first, but what gets them over the hump is then that validation that there's a real story behind it. And so what the Internet um, does allow you to do, and I think quite a bit better than uh, a, tr a typical gallery experience, uh, is to let you drill kind of as deep on the piece, the artist, their background as they want. And so we do invest a lot of time and money in when we bring a new artist on board, you know, going out to their studio, interviewing them, doing photo shoots, you know, taking film of them in the studio, uh, researching their backgrounds and making sure as much of that's available online or customers as possible. And in and, and the as part of the Twilight experience that I, you know, when I went through it, that to me is what stood out. And that's where I do believe, like you said, that online can be a huge difference where, you know, you can almost chat with an artist live. You can see their story, their video that you guys have. I mean, that's why I think Instagram has had a lot of successes because it has the Insta stories, the videos behind the scenes and video being one thing that can really make a huge yeah, difference agree, agree. that you don't get when you go to and, a gallery. And, you know, so we are in discussions with artists about that very thing. I mean, we do um, have the technological ability to, you know, have a button online that says, you know, video chat with an artist. And uh, if artists are willing, you know, we can certainly, you know, route um, FaceTime call right down to their studios. 
Um, there are a couple of our artists that have done that in the past, and they find that the close rate <laughs> when somebody actually takes that step to go and talk to the artist and just has a quick chat with them or jokes with them is, is, is something that gives people a great deal of comfort. So that is something I think we're going to be uh, instituting in the future here is more of that and encouraging artists to do that. I mean, some artists, you know, are willing and, you know, others are not. Others are not. <laughs> yeah, I always thought like my next coming might be one like a, I don't know if I call it like a YouTube for art where you take, you know, a, we get a sense of what you like and then immediately you show the video because sometimes it's like if someone think, you know, if they have confidence in what we're showing is what they're going to like. And then they see this, the artist right away it can get them to convert at a much higher rate. Yeah. So you talked about offline, you guys are opening up a gallery here in your office. How do you think about, and, and we had talked before about, you know, thinking about the retail aspect of this, yeah. how, how, how would you, you know, how do you think about the balance between online and offline and what is that relationship? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, we, we, so we have, really two somewhat distinct businesses here. One of them is a business to the trade, which is to interior designers. And, um, and interior designers are actually, um, a, a, you know, a, a perfect audience for the company because they're going to take the time to come here to our offices, see the quality of the work, or, you know, we've done a number of events in the design community so people could be exposed to the work. And of course, once a designer understands the level of quality. I mean, I, you know, a designer has an eye that can say, uh, you know, I like a piece. I know what it looks like. I can research this artist. This makes sense. I, I can, you know, my, my, my client will find this relevant. And the only thing that's missing from a pure online experience is that designer going, oh, what does this really look like in person? What's the frame like? What's the print quality like? And so once a designer has seen that, um, then they just come to the site and order on behalf of their clients. You have to go through that sort of one time. The consumer side of the business is, is, is no different. What you find, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in a number of, or, or sat on the boards of a number of e-commerce companies, and there are norms around conversion rate for somebody who comes into an online site interested in your product and comes out the other end actually buying something. And I can tell you that in this business, like online conversion rate um, is, is, is well below most industry standards for other e-commerce categories. And the reason for that is because it is a visual product and people need to see it. Um, there are some very successful uh, models, particularly in Europe, uh, that have been built on the back of um, a very big retail presence. Loomis is one of them. So Loomis, like uh, Twyla, is a pure limited edition business, uh, much more heavy on photography, than it is on the kind of fine art we represent. Uh, but Loomis, you know, has 33 galleries in major cities around the world, uh, opening two or three a year. Uh, it's a very big business. Um, I believe, you know, from what I've heard, maybe 20% of their business is online and 80% of it's retail. Uh, they have a competitor out of Paris called Yellow Corner that executed very much the same strategy. I don't know how many stores Yellow Corner has, but they probably have 50 or 60 of those stores. Now, what, what, so, so I think retail, uh, this, this, this may be the perfect space where you have to combine a bit of retail, um, you know, with online selling to really maximize, um, you know, the delivery of your product into the world. When we launched Twyla, we decided that at least early on for a young company like us, building a big retail network 
was a very slow and very expensive undertaking. And so one of the things we decided to do was build um, what we call uh, virtual galleries around the world. Um, and, and what Twyla has done, we have about 70 showrooms now throughout the US, and those showrooms range from you know, the lobby of a hip hotel to you know, the inside of a luxury real estate company to you know, a handful of carefully chosen restaurants and things like that, where we've just said, let's put our pieces out there in the world, let's put Twyla tags next to them, Let's use that for branding um, and, you know, let's use that for conversion. What we found was that it does a nice job for us on a branding front. So, you know, if you come to our site and you're in New York and you want to see our quality, we can point you to a place to go see our pieces. Um, what, it, what it doesn't do, we found, is when people, let's say, walk into a hip hotel that has a few of our pieces, it doesn't really convert buyers because um, because in that context there's very little information um, there's nobody there to really sell it you know they might go and ask the guy at the front desk and he has no idea you know and he has really no idea what's happening and so and so I do get a bit jealous looking at companies like Loomis who have a strong retail presence who have salespeople who are trained to really help consumers on the spot uh, we have done a number of art fairs. Art fairs have been very successful for us as events. We, uh, we sell a lot of pieces at art fairs, but more than that, a lot of people just get exposed to the pieces and come back and buy later. So somewhere in this business, there's going to have to be a retail strategy. Um, I still favor a partnership approach that might make sense. There are, you know, as Twyla, if you think of Twyla as a high-end decor business, um, there are lots of high-end retail decor businesses out there that don't necessarily focus on art. And so maybe there's a partnership in that that would ultimately make sense for the business. Um, we want to deliver the whole experience online because we think it's a better experience. But with this kind of product, I think we are going to have to get pretty aggressive about how we expose it out in the world. Yeah. I mean – it is, uh, I, I like the, the idea of even just like use the word awareness. I mean, brand awareness, art, awareness of art and something that's beautiful that people are looking, for, you know, look at. I mean, that just, it increases at some point the chance that they might be more likely to buy. I think, like you said, how do you convert them on the spot? And it'd be interesting to think through strategies, you know, like we said, like video, like bringing in technology, like beacon technology or something where they stand in front of one and up pops, you know, on their phone and push notification. That's like, hey, watch the video about this artist and like, things like that that could, could end up converting them. But, you know, the most innovative thing we did is that, you know, Twyla uh, offers a program that nobody offers, which is you can buy a trial piece from us online for $30. <laughs> and if in 30 days um, you return that piece, you'll never get charged anything more than $30. And, and it's a pretty... It was a pretty risky program for us because, you know, if we sell a $2,000 piece, uh, the cost to us to manufacture that piece is, is, is very high. It is in the $1,000 plus category. The cost to ship it, you know, is multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars depending on the scale of the piece. And so if somebody buys a piece for $30 and return it and they return it, we've, you know, we've eaten a lot of money yeah. on that transaction. It only works if your return rate is so low uh, that it's worthwhile. And so one of the things we've been pretty 
thrilled and surprised about. It was an experiment we launched about, I think, five months ago, is that, in fact, the return rate is extremely low. Uh, and so, you know, you do that if you feel really strongly about the quality that you're putting out there. And, and, and so that's been a very successful program for us. And, and you know, and, and people get to do that one time. And then if they buy from us again, then, you know, they'll have to pay a full price. And so it's more about, it's more about seeing the quality than I, I do think online, you do have the ability to really study the piece. You, yeah. You can blow it up. Right you can look at now. detail. You can do all those things. That, I, and I love that program. I mean, to me, you know, it's definitely from a business model perspective, it's so innovative and it, it does go to show like the confidence that you have in your product, you know, that, Hey, if someone gets it in there, like they're not going to return it. Well, and the other thing it allows you to do too is let's say the return rate was higher than you expect. Well, then you get to study every one of those returns and ask people why it happened. And, you know, it's also really good data because those, you know, if the numbers had started high, I'm sure we could have adjusted them down by learning. But, you know, right out of the gate, it turned out to be a, you know, a, a good program for everybody, good for the customers, good for us. Yeah. When you, and like we talk about online offline a bit, and there's a report done by Hillcox, which says, you know, it's kind of like, Online companies want to go offline, and then <laughs> offline galleries want to go online. And so I have this vision yeah. of some cyborg or an Iron Man, yeah, you yeah. know, thing where everyone wants to converge. I mean, do you like you talked a little bit about your strategy? And you think there is a retail strategy? What about just like gallery specifically, and how you know how does that merge? How does that play in the future? Do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't think I think for original art, it's going to be. I'm not expecting to see major cha changes in the gallery world other other than, you know, it's like any business when you start seeing penetration from other sources, companies come in like Twyla and others or Van Gogh and make it easier for people to buy. It's going to slowly sort of slowly eat away at their businesses and only the good ones in the end survive. Sure. It's sort of like, you know, I mean, Amazon has put you know, tier three retailers out of business. Yeah. Tier two retailers are now, you know, fighting for capital because they're unprofitable. But there's still a whole host of tier one retailers out there who just, you know, they've built big brands, they have great products and 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 retail is alive and well for all the for the good ones. And so I think that'll be true in the gallery world. But I think that one of the things, uh, if I had to, if I had to see a trend that I see in other businesses that you know, the new consumer demands is not only transparency, but, 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 also, um, but also choice. Like pe pe people like to um, see a lot of choice before making a decision. You know, with HomeAway, for example, we found that, you know, the more properties we added in a market, the higher the conversion rate would be because the more choice you give to people, the more likely it is that they're going to find something that they actually like. A gallery, a physical gallery, is limited in its ability to give you choice. It has a certain amount of square feet, a certain amount of wall space. Uh, even the artists get frustrated because you may be an artist that has, you know, 30 amazing pieces, but, you know, you're given one wall in a gallery and they put up two of those pieces and that's all people can see in that kind of a setting. I think the retailers of the future or the businesses of the future will combine the two where you'll see, and, and I think Loomis is a good example of this in Europe where, you know, there are maybe 150 pieces in their store. There are online screens to look at, you know, 500 more of those. And, you know, they combine this, you know, very broad inventory with an actual high touch retail experience. I don't see traditional galleries 
evolving to that. Some might. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're going to be new companies that come in and just, you know, st- start from scratch and do this a new way. And, and we're experimenting with that. We, uh, last year. Hey, what is that new way? Well, I mean, you know, we, we've, you know, we've looked at, uh, done some experiments with, um, you know, bringing in sort of high-end projector technology into a retail setting where you have physical pieces, but then you can, you know, within a virtual frame on the wall, essentially take somebody through an entire catalog if that's someone to take them through. It's not yeah. perfect, yeah. But once, you, but it, but if you're actually looking at an actual piece on the right and essentially a digital piece on the left, it helps your mind bridge between the two. Sure. And so I listen. There are going to be lots of innovations like that. Um, uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think we'll be doing some of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with what you said, Loomis, though, they, they've got 30 stores, but I think you said only 20% of their sales is online. One of my concerns would be that just, I mean, any retail presence is, you know, it's, uh, a cost and not like a higher operational cost. And so that's why, like you talked about partnerships, uh, earlier, which presumably like you don't It is have, a high operational cost. Yeah. You know, where you don't have that operational cost. I mean, pop-ups, you know, I wouldn't like you guys, I think did a pop-up at some art fairs or other places like, you know, that idea of a pop-up I and mean, you've seen the fashion industry, both from the online and offline, like driving more experiences offline to also doing more pop-ups. I'm curious how that will, how the art world will adapt to that. Um, I think you're just going to see more and more of it. Yeah, for sure. You're going to see much more of it. I mean, there, there's there's all kinds of models out there that are doing it today. Like Warby Parker's a great example. Yeah. Tom's a great example. Casper. Where they'll come into a city, they'll do a pop-up, they'll create a bunch of awareness. Uh, and then oftentimes that market will be so rich for them that they say, well, we're just going to make this permanent. But, they, but, but a lot of brands now use that form of experimentation to just see, you know, where do they resonate in what cities. Sometimes businesses work great in San Francisco, but you know, our complete dud in Boston. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing we're looking at uh, here pretty heavily. I, you know, one of the issues we have is, is our, our, our bread and butter, our large format, you know, pretty dramatic pieces, you know, think four by four feet by four feet as an average for us. So, you know, a pop-up is typically something you do in a small space mm-hmm. or on a bus or in an airstream. And, you know, there's a limit to how sure. much inventory we can actually show. So for in order for us to do that well, we're going to have to bridge some kind of a digital experience mm-hmm. into that that allows people to see more. Yeah, I'm also, you know, I'm curious and I give thought to this where you see galleries, I mean, there's no uh there's no real rhyme or reason as to the artists that they choose other than the gallery owner likes them, the curator likes them. You know, how almost using data, and you've seen actually the music industry has done a really good job with this a company called Bands in Town, small, small company that basically powers small musicians to understand uh, where their fans are. And so, even like reverse engineering that and flipping it and saying, you know, uh, in San Francisco, here's like five or six artists that are really popular. And they might not be well known artists. I mean, they might be kind of like emerging artists or of the artists that are in your remit. And basically using data to drive what artists would be shown at pop-ups or at gallery showings or Yeah, yeah. No, so so listen, that that is the benefit of running um a, a high volume, if you will, internet business. Uh, you know, and Twilight's still a small company, but it's growing very fast, is that you know, over time, you start to accumulate data intelligence that you can use uh, to do this a lot better. So, I mean, let's put it this way. In the early, you know, a year ago, um, you know, when the site hadn't been launched and we had a brand that nobody knows, the way we 
went out and sourced artists is we had curators, you know, ex Gagosian people yeah. who would go who would go out and uh, and convince artists to give our platform a try and uh, and what we were choosing was purely based on what those art curators thought, you know, was was the right thing for our customer base. Yeah. Uh, it's only now a year later, and our process is uh, is very different. We now have, you know probably 40 to 50 artists a month who sort of apply to be on the site. Uh, and um, we now have a panel that includes um, art curators, interior designers, and data scientists from our company who are, oh, I love this. Who are yeah. looking at every element of what performs well with our customer base versus not. Uh, and, and it's all... And, and then you take those three opinions in conjunction, and we have to check the box that the curators say, you know, this is this is a real artist, a significant artist, and somebody that, you know, something that, you know, provides a great value. We have the interior design community saying, you know, this will this will be, you know, the kind of piece that will beautify somebody's home. And then we have the data scientists saying, you know, based on the size, the color, the style. Um, how that artist has performed in the past, how like artists have performed, the price points, all of that wow. has to hit sort of the data side of it. And so that's a very new thing. We just started doing it. In fact, we just, um, the artists we're going to bring on next month, uh, we just for the first time went through that sort of data oriented process. Now, now I'm geeking out over here. This yeah. is great. But it was, but it was only because we didn't have enough data. You know, a year ago, we didn't sure. have any data. Yeah. And, and, and now, you know, listen, we sold you know, many hundreds of pieces, and that's some data. When we get into the many thousands of pieces, you know, you'll have even more and go from there. And I love that. I mean, it's, you know, a company, and they, people are going to think that they're sponsoring this podcast, but uh, Stitch Fix in the fashion industry has done a great job at that balance. And, you know, they use data to drive what recommendations are, but there's still that stylist, you know, in the art world, that'd be the curator kind of at that last step saying, you know, the, the data narrows it from 10,000 to 100. Right. And then the curator or the stylist says, okay, of the 100, here's the five that I would choose. So there's still that, that, that human element in that I, you know, I think in this business is important to combine it too. Yeah. For sure. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. What. So one of the things that I, I am, I'm excited being in the industry is that you come from the tech space. You have launched several companies. Um, you've grown companies uh, to, from you know, nothing literally to IPO, which is all, congratulations. Um, you know, the tech world operates quite differently than the art world. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this earlier. You know, how have you been able to merge these two worlds? And you just gave a great example. Um, but, uh, you know, how is it, how is it, how you able to merge it? How is it different? And what's something that perhaps, you know, you've been able to take from your prior experience and, um, you know, bring to the art world that you think has been valuable? Yeah. I mean, I, I listen, I think, um, there are similarities between all kinds of businesses. Um, you know, anybody who's going to sell something online, there are a number of things, you know, you can put together probably 70% of your team with people from, other businesses who have done that well, who, you know, uh, who, who understand, um, you know, the importance of A-B testing and experimentation and, you know, UX design and, 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 and you know, being relentlessly focused on conversion rate and, and how you improve that on a monthly basis. Because anything that's converting well means that it's making your customers happy. 
Uh, and so there's a lot of science behind running an e-commerce company, especially on the marketing front, on the on the you know on the web design front that m makes a, a ton of sense. But with all these businesses, there's also always sort of a thirty percent that you know has to have some level of industry knowledge. Now, I I will admit um, that when I started HomeAway and and Twyla, uh, I really didn't have uh, any deep knowledge of the industries whatsoever. And I think as an entrepreneur, you think that, um, you know, sometimes because you feel like you can see the forest from the trees because you don't come from the industry, that that's real beneficial. And I think it is because you come in with a whole different set of questions. You look at everything very critically. You have, you know, lots of ideas that maybe people who've just had their blinders on for years would never think of. But you also realize pretty quickly is, there is a lot of history in this business. There are a lot of people who have, you know, tried and failed. There are a lot of people who have trialed and tried and semi-succeeded to do things like this. Uh, and there are people out there that have learned those lessons. And, you know, any startup business like this, or if you're trying to create a new industry, it's, it, it, it's a bit of a race to figure it out before the capital runs out, right? It's always striking a balance between the money you've got to work with um, and the time that that affords you and your ability to figure it out. And, and so, you know, if somebody just sort of jumps into a business like this from the tech world and doesn't uh, spend any time trying to appreciate or have advisors who have seen the, you know, the art world as it exists, it's just going to take them longer to sort it out. And I do think we're a little bit guilty of that. In our, you know, in our first year, most of the people here didn't come from the art world and uh, you know, felt that we could just come in and be super disruptive. One of the things that our company did early on uh, when we launched our first brand campaign, our first brand campaign looked like a fashion campaign. It was targeted at millennials. Uh, it was very edgy. Um, it featured you know, semi-nude photography with you know, gorgeous models in it. And it was just this idea that we were trying to create some shock value. We were trying to sort of merge fashion and art um, and that campaign actually turned out to be kind of a, a, a dud for us. It created awareness for the company. Um, but, for example, we had artists who were upset um, about the images and the advertising and you know, that we had to, you know, convince to stay on the platform. We had writers from the art world who said, you know, th this is an offensive campaign. You're using, you know, you're using fashion to sell art and you're not respecting the art and the artist. And, you know, we thought that maybe that wouldn't be important, but it turns out it is important because those art world critics still drive, you know, a lot of positive, negative sentiment about businesses. And so we got back to a place where we decided to really, you know, dig in deep, understand those perspectives, talk to our artists, talk to people in the art world. We're still very committed to building something unfettered and different than what exists today. But there are certain things that we've learned from the art world that we have to respect. And if you want to have great artists on the platform, then you have to make sure that you really highlight what they do and who those people are. And we, we're now, you know, our second campaign uh, it was a complete 180 where we, um, where we went out in artist studios and we paired artists with our customers and we had conversations between them and we taped those conversations and then we put out content. It was called an Art Connexus campaign and it was all about how, you know, how art can connect people to, you know, another world, to other artists and things like that. 
and, 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 and very quickly, um, you know, all those problems from the beginning resolved themselves where now all of a sudden artists were calling us because they, you know, because they, they, they felt really good about how we were representing, you know, their craft. And so, so it's a balance. I mean, it's a yeah. big balance. Yeah, it must be. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in your board meetings because you've got what the CEO of former CEO of Christie's on there, the CEO of Starwood, and so you know you get all the, the the retail, the hotel angle, and everyone's just duking it out for. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? That tension is actually it it's is great. Pretty, it is pretty interesting. My, you know, so the the board we have a board of four, and I'm one of them. Uh, the other three, you've got you know one of the most innovative venture capitalist in the world, the CEO of Google Ventures. So they're yeah. tech, tech, tech all the way. You've got Doug Woodham, who used to run Christie's, who is absolutely old school, you know, yeah. art world. Although, I'll, you know, I'm going to give Doug a lot of credit here because Doug joined the board of this company because he sees the, he sees the problems with the old art world very transparently, but he also keeps us pretty grounded in the things that are important sure. to us. And then you've got, you know, Amar Lavani, who, um, yeah, who used to, who used to run, uh, w for Starwood and now runs One of my favorite hotel shows. Yeah, and 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 now is CEO of the Standard, and you know what he's really tuned into is, you know, is is, is popular culture and that next generation of buyers and what they care experiences. about experiences and experiences and you know sta Standard Standard is all about Standard is a lifestyle brand. They've created a lifestyle brand and people, you know, go to those hotels because they you know they love the content, they love the programming, they love the newsletters. They love the other people that are there. And so, so yeah, we have a really interesting board because I think really if Twyla is going to be, you know, a successful company, it is the combination of those three things that's going to, you know, that's going to get it there. That's great. And you mentioned the, the CEO of, uh, of Google Ventures. You know, what, what, what is it that you think will, how does the venture space look at this and how do you get them more interested in the art space? I mean, if it's a $100 billion untapped greenfield industry, they should be all over it, but I'm not sure we've seen that yet. Well, you know, everything comes in waves. I mean, there were, uh, you know, the venture world looks very closely at, you know, what's come before and what's performing in the present tense. And, you know, there was some venture money that was poured into a number of companies, be it, you know, Artsy, Paddleate, and others. Saatchi. Uh, Saatchi. And, you know, those models were a lot slower getting out of the game. So when, when all of those guys came along, they were selling the same vision, right? This is a big multi-billion dollar business and it's greenfield and nobody's buying online. And so I think, you know, when you're at the start of something and nobody really has a lot of experience with it, that's a pretty easy time to raise capital because a lot of, you know, venture guys are willing to sort of take that bet, you know, good team, good industry TAM, um, you know, love the product. It's fun. Let's jump in. But, 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 but after that first wave of investment, what venture capitalists look the hardest at is just how have those companies performed as investments? Did their peers who jumped into those companies, you know, uh, make big returns from those investments or not? And unfortunately, with the online art business, those returns have still been pretty spotty. I mean, the the highest valued company in the bunch. Uh, right now is Artsy, and you know Artsy has a good valuation, but it's a private valuation raising private capital. It's not a it's not a real valuation until the company gets sold or the company gets taken public. And you know Artsy, while they've done a great job of 
you know, building a big audience still hasn't figured out, it's not a profitable business. It hasn't figured out how to monetize it yet. And, and, you know, what I know about venture capitalists is, listen, they're, (laughs) they're fun. They like to take big risks. They like to build new industries, but in the end, they're actually all about revenue growth and EBITDA. Ultimately, you have to build a business that they believe is going to make money and, and, and there have not yet been a lot of good examples of that in art. So I think we're in a period right now where traditional Silicon Valley VCs are actually pretty cautious about the space, and they're waiting to see you know, something really hit. Now, kudos to you know, Google Ventures and taking a chance with us and writing a pretty big check with Twyla. I think what they saw with Twyla is that Twyla's different you know, than the other, you know, 10 companies out there that, you know, got funded over the last five years that um, I think what they appreciate is that um, focus in a business is generally important. So us, you know, coming into a meeting and they say, well, gee, the original market is really huge. When are you going to get into that? And we say, you know what, we just want to do one thing really well, limited editions. We want to keep this business model focused and simple and when that's a huge success, maybe we'll look at something else. But that focus, I think, is very much appreciated. And so, and so we were able to raise funding based on, I think, a new and a different model. But listen, you know, uh, I'm sure the rest of the venture world is now watching us and what's going to yeah. happen, you know, with with this company uh, because, you know, venture capitalists are, uh, you know, uh, to some extent, you know, are lemmings when they see other people going in. You know they'll follow in behind, and so I, I, I would say that you know until we see you know a big exit or the big announcement that one of the companies that's been funded, you know, is now past break even and making a profit, um, probably we're not going to see a ton of investment in the category until that happens. And do you think it'll be in different models like yours? I mean, not like yours, but the fact that you are a different model, others that do different models. I th- I think so. I mean, I you know there there are there are a whole bunch of different models. I'm sure to be exploited. Everything from retail to the licensing side of the business to, you know, you talk about the poster business earlier. I mean, the poster business is potentially a very very large business. There are some pretty big companies in that space, and um, you know, you look at things like um, you know hype culture right now. That the, the, the customized sneaker market that's out there, you know, and you have, you know, artists collaborating with brands and then doing, you know, drops of a product that sell 40,000 units in one day. Those opportunities are really cool things that also exist um, in this industry. And so I think there are some, yeah, I think there are some models yet to come. And then, listen, the, the, the other one, uh, and HomeAway wasn't a, a lot different than this in a sense, is also you know, a consolidation play. This may be a market where a really smart investor looks at it and says, you know, I'm going to build an art company that plays across a number of categories from originals to posters to limited editions in between, you know, some retail, some pure online, and, you know, they end up running a consolidation play and, you know, stitching together five or six companies that build something that's big enough that you can take it public and generate return. And you see Saatchi going that route. Yeah, they, they just yeah. launched an art fair, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. launched a limited brand, and they've got yeah. the emerging brand. Yeah, agreed. Um, so you, your last company, like you said, you took from what was a greenfield to an IPO in 10 years. You were at, uh, an IT company for another, what, 13 years before that. If you're looking at, I mean, what's your 10-year vision, you know, when you IPO Twyla? 
Um, you know, what's your 10-year vision for you know, Twyla and, and kind of the space in general and where art plays a role in our everyday lives? You know, I think, what's, uh, I think what would be a real success for us would be uh, for Twyla to be a well-known mass market luxury brand in the art world. If, if, if I were to ask you right now to, you know, name me two luxury brands when you think of cars, when you think of handbags, when you think of watches, when you think of shoes, you can answer that question for every category. But when we ask a consumer and say, what's a, what's a luxury brand for buying art? Like, what is it? I, they have no answer. They're just sort of dumbfounded. There isn't a you know, some people might say Sotheby's and Christie's. Well, that's not a luxury brand for art. That is a very exclusive, you know, club of a few hundred people who can go to those auctions and drop $100 million. And so it just, you know, again, any kind of furniture, you name the category, people yeah. can come up with one or two names. But in the art world, there isn't one that exists. And so what we love to do is over-deliver on quality, provide a really great value, great stories behind everything we do, very consistent quick delivery, great customer service, and be, you know, not, we don't want to be Sotheby's, but we want to be like, kind of, uh, I think a mass market luxury brand that people, when they're, when they're designing, you know, a, a new house or moving into a new apartment, you know, just as they're filling their closets and they say, I'm going to go get something from Ralph Lauren, we'd love them to say, you know, I'm going to get some Twilight pieces to put on the wall. And so that would be, you know, for this to get to sort of an IPO, uh, IPOable event, the business becomes a luxury brand. And you either, listen, you either build those businesses by throwing so much advertising cash at it. Like if we had $200 million, we could probably create a brand overnight yeah. by putting it in every magazine in the world, but that's not how this company's been built. Or you build it kind of one customer at a time by just doing a really good job. Um, and, and that's sort of where we are today. We just feel like if we could just keep over-delivering, and then a friend tells a friend, and a yeah. friend tells a friend, that ultimately, um, you know, the word gets out that this is the place to go if you're going to put, you know, it's quality art that's affordable on your walls. I love it. And, and you create that tipping point where, you know, all of a sudden three of my friends have a toilet piece and I'm like, why don't I have one? Yeah. You know, everyone's talking about it. Um, hey, this has been a blast. Bef before I let you go, can we do a quick rapid fire? Sure. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, what's the last book you read? Uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. Oh, I've re I actually just finished that. Uh, art will be as popular as music in year? It will never be. <laughs> uh, so I hear that you're an amateur artist. What was the title of the last piece you created? You know, I don't, I don't really title my stuff, but uh, I guess that, you know, the, the, the last one that I'm proudest of was one that I did for the uh, boardroom at the Homeaway World headquarters. And it was, if it had a name, I guess it would be called My White Picket Fence. But it was a it was a it was a big white picket fence that um, I built uh, out of both wood and metal, um, but most of the posts in the picket fence were actually all the racing skis from my childhood. I grew up in New England and uh, and raced quite a bit, and I'm still a pretty avid skier. And so my white picket fence sort of combined that notion of being on the slopes and being in the mountains with um, you know with a fence from a house. <laughs> oh, that's great. Love it. All right, last one. What's your life motto? I don't have a life. Uh, well, I do have a life motto. Wake up with a grateful heart. Beautiful. All right, sir. It's been a pleasure to have you. Tell us, where, where can the audience find you or Twyla? Come see us at www.twyla.com. It's all there. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. 
Well, folks, that's the end of today's episode. Be sure to check out Twyla at twyla.com or on Instagram at Twyla. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're gonna wanna show your friends. Thanks again to Vango for sponsoring this episode and to all of you for listening. Remember, if you're an artist wanting to create more or a buyer looking for original art, visit vangoart.co slash podcast and save 30%. 